Well, this week, on Tuesday morning, how many of you were thinking about the Millerites? Okay, a few. That's good. On Tuesday, it was 175 years. And my wife checked it out. It was a Tuesday back in 1844. So on Tuesday morning, they woke up full of excitement and anticipation that they were going to meet Jesus that day. But as the day wore away, it came to midnight, and Jesus had not returned. Then it became the saddest day in their life. And they wept, some of them, wept all that night until the morning. More than we would weep if we lost a loved one. Because their hopes had been so strong. And they firmly believed that Jesus was going to come that day. Well... I think you would agree with me that uh, we don't need 175 years to finish the Day of Atonement, to finish the investigative judgment. It just doesn't take that long. And so we have disappointed Jesus over and over again by the delay we began to be warned that there was a delay around 11 years after 1844. And then especially when we came to 1901, we received the message that due to insubordination, now another word for that is rebellion, due to insubordination, that we would have to remain in this world many more years. And that has been fulfilled. It should be a day of sadness, but also happiness, because if we understand what Jesus is trying to do, it's a wonderful day, this day of atonement, this investigative judgment. So I've entitled this 175 years since 1844. How do you see it? Are you sad that it has taken so long? Or are you celebrating 175 years? You know, people like to celebrate long uh, anniversaries. If someone is married for 50 years, that's a wonderful celebration. But I don't think it should be that way when we realize what has caused this long delay. Looking at the text that we read, this became a very important text to the Millerites because they were tempted to give up the whole thing when Jesus didn't appear. 
But as they were studying their Bible, they came across this text. And they took it as God speaking directly to them. And he said, cast not away, therefore, your confidence. Don't give up. It doesn't mean that I'm not coming. I am coming. Cast not away, therefore, your confidence, which hath great recompense of reward. For ye have need of patience. And some of us have had to have a lot of patience to wait this long. For ye have need of patience that after ye have done the will of God, and that's where we've fallen down. Jesus cannot come until his people attain a certain level of obedience. And so... After ye have done the will of God, ye might receive the promise. So I hope today that this message will spur us onward to be more obedient, to get obedient faster than what we have been doing. <clears throat> For yet a little while, and he that shall come will come, and will not tarry. So God assures them, as well as us, yes, it tarries for a while, but the day is coming that I will return. It's not going to fail. I will return. <clears throat> going on, the verses say, Now the just shall live by faith. Previous to this, they were living by sight. Because God's power was so mighty and they saw, they felt in, them, in the meetings that they had, they felt the power of God. They knew he was with them. But now it's like, where did he go? He's gone. And so now was the time when the just shall live by faith. But if any man draw back, my soul shall have no pleasure in him. And you know the sad part is that most of them drew back. Out of about 50,000 who were expecting Jesus to return on October 22, 1844, <coughs> only 50 of them, approximately, nobody knows exactly probably, but 50 of them didn't draw back. And they were the ones that formed the beginning of the Seventh-day Adventist Church. But we are not of them who draw back unto perdition, but of them that believe to the saving of the soul. How important that message is for us. Because we are tempted to draw back as people ridicule Seventh-day Adventists for predicting the coming of Jesus, and he's still not here after 175 years, there is a danger that we will draw back. But God says, don't draw back. Because if you do that, you're headed for perdition or hellfire. God wants us to hang on and realize we've been the problem and get going so that he can come to earth. 
In 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 3 and 4, we have a warning. And I'm hearing some of these things being said among some of Seventh-day Adventists. And, of course, outside of our church, we, we wouldn't be surprised for people to say this. Knowing this first, that there shall come in the last days scoffers walking after their own lusts and saying, where is the promise of his coming? You know, you guys have been talking about this for 175 years and he's not here yet. And so the scoffers begin to scoff. We've been warned about that. For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. In other words, you think Jesus is coming, but look how many people have died. You know, my father was afraid he wouldn't get married, and now he's dead. And he lived to 94 years old. And so people think, well... That's just a dream. It's not really going to happen. But we must not be in that number because there was a prophecy that our forefathers studied out found in Daniel 8, verse 14. And he said unto me, unto 2,300 days, then shall the sanctuary be cleansed. And when the sanctuary is cleansed, Jesus is able to come. There's a few other events that happen rapidly, and then he arrives. But for all practical purposes, when the sanctuary is cleansed, our destiny is sealed, and it will not change after that point. And so the cleansing of the sanctuary is a very important message for us to understand. And we're going to take a look at some of the texts that have to do with that uh, cleansing of the sanctuary. In Acts 3, verse 19, it tells us when it is fully cleansed, what happens? Repent ye therefore and be converted. Now that's what needs to be going on before it's finished. Repent ye therefore and be converted. Why? Because at the end of the cleansing of the sanctuary that your sins may be blotted out. And it helps us to know when that's going to happen. When the times of refreshing shall come from the presence of the Lord. In other words, in the last days, there is going to be another midnight cry. The Millerites were given the midnight cry, and they went out and said, Behold, the bridegroom is coming. And they were talking about the midnight cry, the last call for people to get ready for October 22, 1844. But it's going to happen again under the power of the latter rain, we are going to give another midnight cry, the last call for people to get ready because 
The cleansing of the sanctuary is almost finished, and in a little while, it's going to be finished. Great Controversy says this on page 352. It prefigured the closing work in the ministration of our high priest in heaven in the removal or blotting out of the sins of his people, which are registered in the heavenly records. Now, in case there's someone here who hasn't studied this too much, the sanctuary had two services, what we call the daily service and the yearly service. In the daily service, people brought their lamb into the courtyard of the sanctuary. They confessed their sins over the head of the lamb, and the priest took the lamb after the sinner killed the lamb. The priest took the lamb and offered that lamb as a sacrifice and took the blood into the holy place and sprinkled it toward the mercy seat. They couldn't go in the most holy place in the daily service, but they sprinkled the blood toward the mercy seat. The sinner now could go home without any guilt because his sin was transferred from him to the sanctuary. But on the Day of Atonement, there was a different work to be done. The sin was now to be taken from the sanctuary out of the sanctuary. He cannot take it out if we don't quit sinning. And so what this is telling us here in Acts 3.19 is that there's going to be a group of people who realize what he's doing up there in the heavenly sanctuary. They're going to get serious about getting rid of sin, and they're actually going to come to the point where they stop. And when they stop, he says, now I can blot out the record of their sin in heaven. I can take it away. He can't take it away if they're going to go and sin again. So he also, at the same time that the record in heaven is blotted out, he blots out their uh, tendency to sin. And it's through their, you know, their growth that he's able to do that. It's kind of like they don't need a mediator anymore, so now he can stop mediating for them. Let's look at the sequence of events. Not every little detail, but uh, the main events on the Day of Atonement because it teaches us what Jesus is doing now in the heavenly sanctuary. In Leviticus 16.6 we read, And Aaron shall offer his bullock of the sin offering. which is for himself. Now notice, it wasn't a lamb. The reason is, when a leader sins, it's more serious than the average church member. And so, for Aaron, 
he had to offer a bullock, not a lamb. And Aaron shall offer his bullock of the sin offering, which is for himself, and make an atonement for himself and for his house. Now we're going to notice one thing that goes all the way through because this was the day that teaches what is Jesus doing when he cleanses the heavenly sanctuary. He has to clean everything. He has to get rid of all of the, the effects of sin. And so the first step was for the priest. Now, the priest represents Jesus, but not in this particular, because Jesus never sinned. He didn't need a sin offering for him. But because the earthly sanctuary had a human priest, before he could officiate that day, he had to have his sins cleansed. And there are two aspects of sin that were represented here. First of all, if he had forgotten to confess anything, he had to make sure that that day did not pass without it being confessed. Second, he had to make sure that there was no desire to sin in anything, that he had turned that over to God and that there was nothing there where he wanted to do wrong. <clears throat> Once he did that, he was prepared now to officiate in the service. The next one, verses 7 and 8. And he shall take the two goats and present them before the Lord at the door of the tabernacle of the congregation. So they brought two goats, and they were going to cast lots, but they wanted God to guide which goat would be chosen. And so they presented them before the Lord on that day. <clears throat> and Aaron shall cast lots upon the two goats, one lot for the Lord and the other lot for the scapegoat. Now, you probably know what the scapegoat represented. It represented Satan. So one goat was chosen to represent Jesus, and the other goat was chosen to represent Satan. Now, the bullock represented Jesus, too. It was just a more expensive offering that leaders should offer if they sinned. And the goat was a representative of the people. And so this was a very important selection, and you'll see why. Point three, in Leviticus 16, verse nine. <clears throat> and Aaron shall bring the goat upon which the Lord's lot fell and offer him for a sin offering. So now an offering is made for the people that now, on this day, nobody could bring their lamb to the sanctuary. It says no man would be allowed in there. So this was done for them. And yet, if they had any sins to confess, this was the last 
a day when they could make confession of those sins. Actually, probably by the time this goat was offered, they were to make sure that their sins were uh, confessed. But it had a double purpose. It was to be used also in the removal of their confessed sins from the sanctuary. Now, if you want to read another note on it, in Christ in his sanctuary, page 143, it has an explanation of that. Point four, then shall he kill the goat of the sin offering that is for the people and bring his blood within the veil and do with that blood as he did with the blood of the bullock and sprinkle it upon the mercy seat and before the mercy seat. Now in the daily sacrifice, they could only get close to the mercy seat. And they put it on the horns of the altar of incense and sprinkled it toward the mercy seat. But now, on the Day of Atonement, because this was to be a final disposal of their sins, it was sprinkled on the mercy seat and toward the mercy seat. Point five, in verses 16 and 18, and he shall make an atonement for the holy place because of the uncleanness of the children of Israel and because of their transgressions in all their sins. So notice, you know, sometimes we tell people that when you confess your sins, they are separated from you as far as the east is from the west, and they're thrown in the depths of the ocean and nobody will ever see them again. That's not really correct because those sins are still there in the sanctuary until the cleansing takes place. And so they had to cleanse with the blood of Jesus. They had to cleanse all the articles of furniture <clears throat> in the sanctuary. It was as though the sins of the people had had made everything dirty. Everything was made filthy in the sanctuary because of their sins. And it was there all year long, even though they confessed on the first day of the year, that filthiness was still in there. Now the guilt was gone because they had done what God asked them to do, but they, this sanctuary had to be cleansed. And he shall go out unto the altar that is before the Lord and make an atonement for it and shall take of the blood of the bullock and of the blood of the goat and put it upon the horns of the altar round about. So even out in the courtyard, they had to cleanse the courtyard as well as the holy place, everything. And notice they used the blood from the bullock and the goat because the sins of the leadership as well as the sins of the people had made everything filthy, dirty, and it was that way all the time, filthy, dirty from their sins. <clears throat> Verse 19, it says, And he shall sprinkle of the blood upon it with his finger seven times. You probably know that's perfection. So, it was to be clean, not partly, but fully cleaned. 
<clears throat> sprinkle of the blood upon it with his finger seven times and cleanse it and hallow it from the uncleanness of the children of Israel. You know, there's a very important lesson in this. Because we are sinners, we are partially blinded as to how bad sin is. How incredible, amazing it is that he would even accept us. And of course, he cannot do it except through the righteousness of Jesus and through the sacrifice of Jesus. That's the only way he can do it. And yet, even with that, the picture that he gives us is that there is a lot of cleansing that has to take place in order for us to be able to go to heaven. <clears throat> Number six, he shall bring the live goat, and Aaron shall lay both his hands upon the head of the live goat and confess over him all the iniquities of the children of Israel. Now, if they were gone when they confessed them, this would not be possible. But because they're not gone, they're up in the books of heaven, and his blood is covering them, but they're still there. And so now, as they come to the cleansing of the sanctuary, those sins are, through the blood of Christ, put upon the priest, which also represents Christ, and they are now brought outside the sanctuary after all the cleansing of all the articles of furniture and everything, as well as uh, picking up those sins, and they bring them out, and now they are confessed. Now, obviously, not every little sin is confessed, but uh, however, it, you know, I'm not sure exactly what they did or what Jesus does, but we know with him, he looks at, people name by name, and then he cleanses each individual, um, you know, at, at the time that theirs is looked at. And all their transgressions in all their sins, putting them upon the head of the goat, and shall send him away by the hand of a fit man into the wilderness. Now, this has been a challenge for Bible scholars. Who is the fit man that's going to take Satan into the wilderness? And this particular part has caused a lot of ridicule to be given to Seventh-day Adventists. They say, you Adventists, Make Satan your sin bearer. And so uh, we need to understand this, and I'll try to explain that in a few moments. Number seven, now the sins have all been removed, the articles of furniture have all been cleaned, but there's still another step. And he shall wash his flesh. This is about the priest now as well as uh, the man that took the, the scapegoat out. Everyone has to do this. And he shall wash his flesh with water 
in the holy place and put on his garments and come forth and offer his burnt offering. Now here is another interesting aspect. If you study what is the meaning when they offer a burnt offering, this is talking about dedication. That when a person wants to, to offer a burnt offering, they're saying to Jesus, I belong to you. I want you to have total control of my life. I want you to send me where you want me to go. I want you to tell me what I should do and tell me what I shouldn't do. I'm yours. I'm fully yours. That could not be done to the fullest extent until the sins had been cl cleansed out of the sanctuary. But once they were cleansed, and even the priest had washed and everyone that had to do with anything with that service had all washed, and, and become clean, now they offer this burnt offering and the burnt offering of the people and make an atonement for himself and for the people. So there you have the main ingredients of the service. And they refer to the work that Jesus is doing in heaven. All those details have to do with different things that happen up in heaven. Now I mentioned that there are two aspects of the atonement, but let me read to you what they are. Great Controversy, page 420. By the offering of blood, the sinner acknowledged the authority of the law. So that's another aspect. When they brought their lamb, to offer, and there were other offerings for people that were too poor to bring a lamb. When they did that, <clears throat> they were saying, we accept that we should be keeping the Ten Commandments. We know that we should be keeping them. Second, confessed his guilt in transgression. And third, and expressed his desire for pardon through faith in a Redeemer to come. That's the daily service. But notice what it says next. But he was not yet entirely released from the condemnation of the law. Then the second service, which is the Day of Atonement, it's on the same page, on the Day of Atonement, the high priest, having taken an offering from the congregation, went into the most holy place with the blood of this offering and sprinkled it upon the mercy seat directly over the law. Why did he put it there? Directly over the law. To make satisfaction for its claims. When the high priest and it was only the high priest that could go in, when he sprinkled that blood there, he was telling what Jesus would do and that he would make full satisfaction for the claims of the law by the shedding of his blood. He could do that. Then, in his character of mediator, he took the sins upon himself and bore them from the sanctuary. Now, Jesus died on Calvary. 
but he did not take the sins from the sanctuary and take them out of the sanctuary until the cleansing of the sanctuary was finished. And so that is the second step. Seventh-day Adventists understand that the atonement has two steps, not just one. Two steps. When we confess our sins, praise God, we can go away from our prayer without guilt. But we know, or should know, that those sins haven't been fully dealt with. They cannot be fully dealt with until we quit. Now, if someone dies, of course, they quit sinning, right? So he can deal with them. One by one, starting with Adam, all the way down. But then at some point, he comes to the living. He can't deal, he can't take the sins of the living out of the sanctuary if they keep on doing them. And so he has to wait, and that's really what's been holding things up for these 175 years, to find a group of people that really believe that they can quit sinning and that Jesus is able to help them stop because he can't close it up unless he gets a group of people that actually stop. Then he can take them out of the sanctuary and they will never, ever be seen again or talked about again. Now, what is the duty of the people during this important uh, cleansing of the sanctuary? Well, Leviticus 16, 29 to 31 explains that too. Ye shall afflict your souls and do no work at all. Now, of course, that was written from the standpoint that the atonement was only one day. So it's not hard to stop for one day your work. But I was thinking about this because everything is telling us something about the heavenly sanctuary. We cannot ignore that. We have to understand what is being talked about there. Two things we need to understand. Number one, that it's a time to afflict our souls. And second, it has something to do with our work. And I'm going to suggest to you what I believe it is telling us. It may be okay during the, you know, daily service to be so wrapped up in your work that you keep on sinning because you don't spend enough time with Jesus, you don't do what it takes to really, you know, be the conqueror. Maybe that's okay during that period of time. But it's not okay during the time when the sanctuary is to be cleansed. So, you know, I realize we have to make a living. We, we, it's not just a one-day thing, but it's calling for some things to change in our lifestyle. It might be that some of us could be successful in paying our bills and getting done what needs to be done without working as much as you would work during the daily service. 
so that we have time for two things. Number one, to make sure that we have time with the Lord so that we can grow to the place where we can quit sinning. And second, one of the things that makes us grow is to help other people learn the message that has to go to the entire world before you can close it up too. And stop pleading that, well, I don't have time because, you know, I have to work so much. Uh, I can't decide what God has for you, but I just want to stir your thinking that during the time of uh, cleansing the sanctuary, there was less work being done because there was a reason for it. The afflicting of the soul was one of them. And uh, God is calling us to do that while the heavenly sanctuary is being cleansed. Going on, it says, For on that day shall the priest make an atonement for you to cleanse you that ye may be clean. And notice how clear it is. Clean from all your sins before the Lord. It shall be a Sabbath of rest unto you, and ye shall afflict your souls by a statute forever. So here we see what the people were to be doing. And the question is, are we doing it? If not, it's not too late to start, but soon it will be too late. We must be busy following this instruction and then we will be able to realize the fulfillment of the promise. Now, he doesn't ask, how many sins are you doing? He's not asking that. Because some people are doing a lot of them. And some of them are pretty gross. But he only says, let me take those away from you. That's what I want to do. And the best expression I know in the Bible is found in Psalm 139, 23 and 24. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. And see if there be any wicked way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. There's three main things that are taking place here. The sinner is saying, Lord, did I forget to confess anything? Please help me to remember it. Now, don't worry if he doesn't bring it to your mind. Some people worry, well, maybe I didn't confess everything. If you're praying for him to remind you and you don't remember it, don't worry. He will tell you at the appropriate time if, if there's something you need to uh, confess. But if you're not asking, then you do have something to worry about. Second thing is that the person is saying to God, is there anything that I didn't realize was sinful to do? Please open my eyes so that I can see it and, and get rid of it. Because you can't get rid of it after the sanctuary is cleansed. Now's the time. You know, my wife doesn't like it when we don't give her all of the laundry. And she does the laundry, and then there's some more things that need to be cleaned. And so God is the same way. He doesn't want, and it's just not possible 
to bring the laundry after he's cleansed the sanctuary. So it has to get in there so it can be brought out and the sanctuary be clean. And the third thing is, Lord, please help me to follow you and do what is right and not go in the wrong path. Help me in the future to be more obedient. Now, I, in my study for uh, this sermon, and I also gave one last night at Wildwood. If you want to see that one too, you're, you're welcome either on my... Um, I have a, a YouTube channel, and it's also on Wildwood's YouTube channel. But this opened my eyes to something. You do not take your wrongs and errors to heart. This is written to a specific individual, but it applies to quite a few, I believe. When you sin, how bad do you feel about it? Now, don't get depressed. That's, if you get depressed, you're listening to Satan. But if you feel really bad about what you did, that's appropriate. And this person was not thinking that way. And so they received this instruction. You do not take your wrongs and errors to heart and afflict your souls over them. I entreat you to purify your souls by obeying the truth. Connect yourselves with heaven. Again, two things are pointed out here. Number one, <coughs> when we fall, <coughs> and we know that we didn't need to fall, there is power available, and we knew it was wrong to do, and now we fell, it's a time to afflict the soul. And the best way is this way, Lord, I did it again, and I know that I didn't need to do it again. Please help me to hate this sin more and to take hold of your strength more so that I will not do it again. This will be the last time that I do this sin. If we're like a lot of people, we'll just say, well, you know, uh, my father was this way and I'm this way, and so you'll just have to accept it that sometimes I do this we'll never be able to pass if that's our attitude. But we have to afflict our souls. And so the message was given to this person, you need to realize that there is a cleansing of the sanctuary going on and you need to purify, you need to get rid of that sin through the power of Christ and to assure them that it could happen, it said... Connect yourself with heaven. There's more than enough power to connect yourself. If you connect with heaven, you can conquer. Now, we can't say how many times it'll take before you don't do it again, but we know this. If you don't give up, you can conquer, especially in the time of the cleansing of the sanctuary because Jesus is saying, I want to come, but in order for me to come, I have to finish cleansing you so that I can blot out your sins and get rid of them. And so if we understand that and we work together with him, it can happen faster than we think. 
That's what I talked about uh, last night. May God help each one of you to recognize the seriousness of the time in which we live, but to be involved the way Jesus wants you to be involved. The weakest of sinners can be cleansed of sin. The reason is he's so powerful. So we don't have to say, well, I could never do it. That's not the issue. It is possible if you connect with him to do it. But it will not happen if we're not involved and aware of what's going on right now in the heavenly sanctuary.